This is Mick and the Fat Man, and we're talking life and music from the 60s through to the noughties. Welcome everybody to Mick and the Fat Man Talking Music. I'm the Fat Man and we're coming to you live from the Riverwood Scout Hall in Sydney, Australia, right across the road from the beautiful Bland Oval. And with me is Mick. G'day Mick, how are you going? I'm going great, mate. Mick, being our first episode, I think it's probably useful if we give people a bit of a rundown on why we're here and what are we doing. Okay, sure. We're a couple of blokes who were born and raised in the southwest of Sydney, um, an average suburb. Um, we've been music fanatics since before we were teens. Uh, and I think that what we've got to give the, give the world is a, a different take on music to, compared to someone who was brought up in the UK or the US, for instance. Yeah, I think you're right, because I think in our time as we were growing up, um, it was the rise of Australian music where the Australians weren't just doing covers of um, overseas songs. So we saw the rise of, the, of um, Australian music, original music, um, as we grew up. That's very true, but we also saw a growing appreciation of what else was happening in the world. And it wasn't just the top 40, and, we, and, and we'll talk about top 40s as we go along, but it wasn't just the bands that made it onto the top 40, no matter how good they might have been. There was a growing appreciation of a lot of second and, and third tier bands and individuals. So good understanding of music all around. And what sort of stuff are we likely to talk about? What sort of, what sort of gems will we share with our audience? Well, we've been to a lot of concerts, we've been to a lot of shows, we've, uh, we've met and seen a lot of people. So I think we're going to be talking about music, bands, albums, concerts, connections and how they affected us growing up in a world that was very different in very many ways to the one we have today. Yeah, it was, it was. And um, will, we, uh, will, we con- will, we, will we talk about anything that might relate to beer, do you think? I don't know if we'll talk about it, but we might uh, might guzzle a few as we're uh, as we're recording, which may help the fluidity of it. May do, may do. Look forward to it. Um, and what do you reckon people will get from the podcast? What are they What are they going to take away from this podcast? Uh, I think they'll get lots of snippets of knowledge about this, that, or the other. Because I know that you and I have been uh, been reading magazines from from Gosset in the, mm. in the seventies all the way through to what it, whatever's available in the newsstand these days. Plus, God knows what's on the internet. Uh, so lots of knowledge and snippets about their favourite uh, musicians, little anecdotes, lots of opinions. Some of it might even be valid. Yeah, or well, most of it probably not. But I think it's imp- it's a useful now that we're in the world of the internet, the accessibility of information is so different to what it was as we grew up. You, know, you had to get a magazine or you had to see it on TV. There was no other source. I mean, you weren't going to find the history of Pink Floyd in the Encyclopedia Britannica. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you weren't. All right, so let's move on. Um, I think one of the things we're always going to kick off with uh, is what we've been listening to in the last week or so. Mick, what have you been listening to? Well, funnily enough, I've been listening to uh, a song called Hallelujah, which was written by Leonard Cohen, but I've been listening to the John Cale version. Uh, I think everybody... Why would you be doing that? Well... (laughs) (laughs) Why would you do that, sir? Well, well, John Cale, uh, who is one of the founder members of the Velvet Underground, and he's a, he's a, he's a fellow we'll talk about later. Um, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt indeed. And um, he, recorded, he, he, um, he recorded the first version of Hallelujah, which became the template 
for uh, for everybody else's versions. The the execrable uh, bloody um, Jeff Buckley version, KD Lang, Bono. In fact, even the version that uh, that Kale arranged became Leonard Cohen's version. He took it and uh, and, and and reworked his own. Do we express an opinion of the Jeff Buckley version? Should I? You want a definition for execrable? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, because no. that word doesn't really mean anything to me. That's that's <laughs> that's very true. Jeff Buckley's not on my top ten favourites. No, no, no. no. Uh, a, a soprano squaller, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so no, I I don't like him very much. And he's he's note for note the version that he that he recorded and uh, and sold a lot of copies of is the uh, the Kale arrangement. And it was on an album called um, I'm Your Fan, which was a tribute album in the very early nineties. Uh, with a whole lot of bands uh, doing various Leonard Cohen al- uh, tracks, people like the Pixies. Was that the so was that the first time the John Cale version was recorded? On that? Yes, yes. Oh, there you go. <coughs> and it appeared later in um, in th- it even appeared in Shrek. So if you've seen the movie Shrek, it's the John Cale version that they're playing as Shrek wanders around doing whatever it is that Shrek does. Things that green people do. In, well, indeed, but they did edit it because. Uh, hallelujah. Nobody really seems to look at the words, but it is so laden with sex, the song. It's because Leonard Cohen, in his own book, um, I'm Your Man, Leonard Cohen actually said that the reason he started music was to get laid. And an honourable choice, too, I believe. I think that's a wonderful thing. But he wasn't, I mean, he, he wasn't a great singer, though, was he? He was more of a, I saw him more, was more of a talker. Absolutely. It's a bit like Dylan. Mm. Writes absolutely wonderful songs that are so much better done by others. Yeah, because he sounds like a squealing cat. But yeah. anyway, <laughs> um, so I've been, uh, I've been listening to uh, something that come out, of the, uh, come out of the woods the other day, the Indelible Merceps. Ah, Spectrum. Indeed. The, the Spectrum Alter Ego. And um, great album by them, um, uh, which has got that great song, Excuse Me which has the line, excuse me just one moment while I throw up on your couch. <laughs> and finishes with a great soundbite of someone vomiting. Was this before or after the uh, increasing sophistication of Australian music you uh, referred to earlier? This was oddly enough during it, um, but it was, a, uh, was an interesting... Um, was an interesting uh, the, the album was actually Warts Up Your Nose. I'd forgotten that. There was Warts Up Your Nose. And there's another song on that album which is called On the Bog, which is, <laughs> which is just great. Ladies and gentlemen, what you are listening to now could well be the last of our podcasts ever. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <clears throat> they, uh, I don't know whether the, the – actually, the Indelible Mercips did do some songs, but they were usually done on a, a Spectrum concert. So Spectrum were really around in the early 70s, late 60s, I think, from memory, and uh, Mike Rudd and – I can't remember the name of the – Bass player with the big, big mo. Yeah, yeah I can't name. remember his name. No, no. I don't know. Another one. Anyway, um, so um, <clears throat> what we thought we might walk, uh, talk about the on this show is um, our first purchases in the uh, in record spaces, and I'll uh, kick this one off, Mick. I, my very first record that I ever bought was uh, Revolver by the Beatles, and I was trying to think back: is why on earth did I buy Revolver? Why didn't I buy, I don't know, Sergeant Pepper? Abbey Road or something like that, but I've, I'd forgotten that, in fact, my brother had the albums Abbey Road, Let It Be 
and Sergeant Pepper. So I bought the next one before that, which was Revolver. And I'm not going to talk a huge amount about Revolver because realistically it's, um, you know, there's plenty of people out there that are, that are um, Beatle experts that know a lot more about the Beatles than I ever will. But I will note that, <coughs> pardon me, that the, um, the album was really their first album. They'd actually made a decision never to tour again. So it was the first album where they really started to experiment with music and with using uh, things like double tracking and reverse tapes and I wrote this down, closed audio miking. I don't know what it means but it sounds very good. Um, so they really played with the music and that was uh, – Epstein was obviously there – uh, integral in that sort of stuff. So there's a lots of um, uh, more complex stuff that back in those days would have been, back in 1966, would have been fairly difficult to take on the road with them. The other thing that's unusual about that album was that it was uh, had three Harrison-written songs on there, which is fairly unusual for the band that's credited with McCartney and Lennon, but it was three um, Harrison songs on there. And I don't know whether it was the first time, but certainly one of the early uh, albums where you saw the use of the sitar on there. And I, for life of me, don't know whether Ravi Shankar was doing it, but if you go back in the day and look at uh, some of the old uh, concerts and things like that when Ravi Shankar was around, you could sit and watch a good 30 minutes of Ravi Shankar on a concert. And I, while I don't mind a little bit of it, um, <clears throat> it uh, can be a little bit trying at time after about 30 minutes of it. But um, seconds. You, um, you. Uh, I mean, I think if you're taking the appropriate substance, probably the the sitar and that music sounds pretty good. I would have thought. Funny you should mention um, Lennon and McCartney. I was reading an article recently, uh, an interview with Eric Idle, who um, who was talking about the 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 the, the growing pains of uh, of Monty Python. Mm. And the funding issues that they had with their various movies, um, uh, Life of Brian, uh, Holy Grail and so on. Mm. And George Harrison was very much involved in, uh, in funding and keeping Monty Python alive and almost singularly funded uh, uh, Holy, Holy Grail. Life of Brian, wasn't it? Uh, both, yeah. yeah. And I remember um, listening to Eric Isle talking about um, George um, and he basically went in and pitched, was talking to, to George Harrison about... The, the Holy Grail, and uh, George said, "I'll fund it because I just want to be able to watch the movie." Yeah, <laughs> and, and the more I read about George Harrison, the more of an interesting you know he's because Lennon McCartney gets so much airplay. He's very much the other guy mm. in the Beatles. Everyone knows Ringo, but George is there, and he's very deep, very considerate, um, uh, and 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 really loved life. But the story that that I read, Eric Idle on the, on the set of the movie, Eric Idle was having a, a DNM with Harrison, and he said, in, in, "I won't even try and do his accent." But he was complaining about the difficulty of getting screen time when you've got people like Palin and Cleese there. Mm. And Harrison says, "Oh, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> you try getting some studio time with Lennon and McCartney." <laughs> Actually, that's the. Uh, it, it's interesting because George was the man who brought. Um, LSD into the Beatles and uh, the, and it was uh, really the revival where they really started using some acid. It was uh, him and uh, Lennon who were using a reasonable amount of acid. I think uh, Ringo had a bit, but Paul never did. No. He was a good, upstanding, clean fellow, which is yeah. good to see. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought His that. mistakes really came when he wanted to have sex with a one-legged hooker, I think. But anyway, let's move on that from that. That was later. <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles had split up by then. Oh, right, I can't. I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, the other thing that's interesting um, is uh, the cover of the album of, the, of Revolver was um, done – and it, it, it's actually interesting because if you look at um, the earlier Beatles, Beatles albums, they're just sort of that – the four photos of the Fab Four on the front of the cover. But this one was a drawing uh, which was done by a fellow by the name of Klaus Vorman. And uh, he was basically a session muso, but he was the original bass player for Manfred Mann. And uh, but he played with many people over the years, including Lou Reed, Carly Simon, James Taylor, Harry Nilsson. Um, he was even a member of uh, Yoko Ono and Lennon's Plastic Ono band for a while. So yeah, a bit, uh, sort of an interesting fellow. And if you go online, you can actually still buy uh, drawings of his, including drawings uh, like different versions of the Revolver album uh, on his website. Oh, cool. Cool. So I suggest you go on there and get a, uh, a revolver. Uh, uh, An original. Original by Klaus. Yep, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. <coughs> so um, what I thought I'd just go on to now, the top 40. So the revolver was, um, was uh, released in 1966 and uh, in Australia in uh, 1966, the top song. So this is for the entire... <clears throat> the entire year was uh, the top song for the entire year in 1966 was Nancy Sinatra. These boots are made for walking, and they were. They were indeed. Um, but as you go down, there's some there's some interesting things like Normie Row, Ooh La La, mm. and who could forget that? I know I did. Um, the Easy Beats, though Friday on My Mind, mm-hmm. um, great song. Painted Black by the Stones, Good Vibrations by the Beatles were in there. Uh, the Beatles had about four songs on there, so I'm not going to go through each one of those. Good Vibrations. <coughs> did the Beatles do a cover of that? I thought the Beach Boys did the original of Good Vibrations. They did, and then there was the uh, the cover, which obviously <laughs> <laughs> screwed up. Yeah. Um, uh, the Trogs, Wild Thing. Ah, right. <coughs> was there. and uh, cover, Another one covered by hundreds of bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Spicks and Specks by the Bee Gees. Oh, goodness. That's a... That's a long time ago. It just goes to show how long the BGs have been around. It does indeed. I think they're a little bit younger. Well, some of them. Some of them. Well, one of them, in fact, but just just the one. I'm missing a couple now. I don't know where they went. Um, and then just go back to uh, that Boots Are Made For Walking, Nancy Sinatra. As you remember, back in the day, I used to play in a band and I played bass guitar in that band. And I used to uh, use a a book for uh, scales and those sorts of things and riffs from a person by the name of Carol Kay. And mm. um, she turned out to be, she was a session muso and she did the bass on These Boots Are Made For Walking. <coughs> and if you think back and listen to the iconic line that's in there for The Boots Are Made For Walking, it was a dun 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 bung, bung, bung. Well, apparently when she went to do that song, <coughs> me, they uh, wanted them to be boom, boom, boom. Boom, 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 boom. But no, she decided, no, we won't do that, we'll do this. And so that became the iconic bass line. And she went on to record uh, something over 10,000 uh, recordings in, the, uh, in, um, in session work and became one of the most prolific uh, session musos out there um, and went on to work with uh, people like um, um, uh, the, um, the Beach Boys, um, and um, also did some of the classic um, uh, movie things like movie, uh, sorry, show uh, things from uh, things like Hawaii Five O and those sorts of things. So 
a very prolific um, muso over the years, and um, she um, f- you know was one of the, the the groundbreakers as far as um, moving into the music world as a session muso because essentially it was a male dominated world, and there was this. Uh, well, if you look, if you once again, if you go online, look at a few photos of her back in those days. She's this just petite little thing with a nice big jazz Fender Precision bass churning out amazing music. So, uh, yeah, an interesting um, interesting woman there. So, um, so I was going to say, she... Uh, oh, that's right, yeah, she also uh, worked with the, the uh, bass line on um, Feeling Alright by Joe Cocker. Oh, no, really? Yeah, uh, and the uh, and did a lot of work, apparently, with Phil Spector and didn't get shot, so that was good. Lucky for her. It's and an achievement. It is an achievement if you, if you do a lot of work. Righteous Brothers, she did. Uh, you lost that love and feeling, but the thing I found interesting also is she does so much work with bands. She did so much work with bands when the bands didn't do their own bass work, even though they had a bass player. So I mean, that's common, obviously, with when when they realise that the the band is not a very good muso, uh, has not particularly good musos in it. So it, yeah. is is that bass players in general or or uh, just uh, some? Just just some, but also musos and people who need to break. People who need to uh, do a guitar solo and they're not particularly good at doing a guitar solo, or perhaps a piano solo, Michael, if the uh, truth be known. Indeed. Let's uh, move on, shall we? <laughs> Smart ass. Um, so, give us a. Uh, what about you? What was the first album you ever bought? Hard to remember that far back, you know, but I believe that probably one of the first albums I bought was Hot August Night by Neil Diamond. Now, when was that before? That was back in the early 70s, about 1972. Was it that early, was it? Yeah. Wow. Because he released several other Hot August Nights, version two, version three, uh, over the next decade or two. Mm. But what... what, Just looking back on it, and when we were talking about what our our, uh, earliest album would have been, back then, he wasn't the fairly conservative, quiet, soundtrack-making, 2CH type music person back then, he was right on the edge. He did some really great stuff. Hot August Night sounds like it was an absolutely awesome concert. Mm. He did some lovely folk-based stuff, but he also rocked out a bit. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a DJ in Sydney who, uh, who, who loves him, and they've interviewed Neil Diamond a couple of times, and he, he just constantly talks about, take it, Alan. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah. So and the tree people. How, who were the tree people? Tree people were people who were in the park, the, the Greek theatre, which is an outdoor theatre in, uh, in LA. Oh. And they climbed up in the trees to be able to look over the fence and, uh, and, and watch the concert for free. That's right. Hello, tree people. Yeah, I'm singing <laughs> for you too. So it was a great album. It was huge. Um, as I say, Diamond was well regarded as, as, one of the, uh, as one of the top of that crop of uh, late 60s uh, early singers and songwriters. Yeah, he and was. Then, then he did Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And gee, <clears> that was, I I bought that album. I don't know why. I can't remember now. I ended up with it, but um, it was terrible. Yeah, really, really just terrible. Unfortunately, yeah. I I don't know why I bought it. But maybe maybe he he churned out all of his his go gettingness uh, on Hot August Night. But also, I the the movie was terrible as well. Very much of that uh, that that philosophy of of go get it, you can do it. Yeah, yeah. Every every man can talk themselves into their own success type nonsense that they carried. Oh God, See, I, I, I can't even speak about it. Um, I was um, going to run through a couple of my um, albums that I had on high rotation back in the uh, 
in the 70s. And uh, Hot August Night was indeed one of them. 1972, you're right. Zeppelin 4, I think, was also another album that was... Uh, of course. ...that was out there. That was 71, I thought. I would have bet the million bucks it was later than 71 that that came out. It was... It was 71, but it really copped a caning through 72. Oh, right. Yeah, it was... Um, and it was in, fact, a big in fact, from then until now. <laughs> yes. Although I think <clears> it's actually come off the uh, the best... Uh, oh, sorry, Stairway to Heaven's actually no longer the, the best guitar solo in the history of the world. I don't think it's actually up there anymore. It was there for a very long time on Triple M, for my memory. Mm. Um, uh, Yellow Brick Road was there in 73. Bad Company in 74. And then one of the big albums that I... Thoroughly enjoyed was the first Tubes album, The oh, Tubes. Absolutely. 75, yes. would you believe? Wow. Mm. And then 801 <laughs> Live, 76. Yep. Ziggy Stardust, 72. That far back as well. Yeah, that's yeah, right. It's frightening. Yeah, so there was um, – oh, and of course back in 74, speaking of um, uh, Australian bands, original Australian bands, was Living in the 70s by Skyhooks. <sighs> yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, Skyhooks. There used to be a show uh, sponsored by uh, the film company Polaroid uh, oh. on, on television in the, in the early 70s, 73 through about 76, and it was called Polaroid in Concert, oh. where they used to have Australian bands on there. And that was the first time I ever saw Skyhooks. Uh, out of nowhere, they're a band out of Melbourne, so mm. they, Melbourne had a reputation of producing um, somewhat, uh, somewhat theatrical mm. bands, and, uh, and Skyhooks... Absolutely uh, fit that bill. You had Shirley done up in satins, uh, you know, with his uh, with his Shirley Temple type hair. Red Simons, before he became a gong basher on uh, on uh, on the Saturday Night TV, he actually used to dress up in almost Rocky Horror type costumes on stage and uh, poke and his tongue out, poke his tongue out, and uh, and led the crowd in a chant of "suck shit." <laughs> I'd forgotten that. <laughs> we- which which was interesting, yeah. So that that show that showed you were saying before about Australian uh, Australian music, uh, the Polaroid in concert showed a lot of Australian bands, and again, that's something that people you know, could get a lot of value out of looking up. I'm sure there's stuff like that uh, on YouTube. I'll give you uh, one other Australian album that I did buy, which um, I rate as one of my worst albums, which was John English Inroads. It was a terrible album, and um, one of the things that I made a mistake of doing, and I can't remember how it happened, but Back in the uh, early 70s, I, I joined a record club. Remember record clubs? Oh, yes. Used to be on the back of magazines, buy five records for a dollar and, and then there's always a thing saying, uh, we'll send you a new record every month which you can send back if you don't want it and then I still always forget to send them back. And um, uh, John English, Inroads, was one of those albums um, which I, need, I did play once, just once. And, uh, which yeah. is a shame because he did some nice stuff as well, some really good stuff. That's right, six ribbons. Yep, bit, <laughs> bit before that, mate. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 well, we're talking about Neil Diamond doing soundtrack. John English did theme songs. He did. I'll buy you six ribbons to tie up your hair. Yeah, it's for, from a TV show called Against the Wind. Oh yes, I'd forgotten that. And I'll give you one other album that I ended up with. I think I got it out of the junk pile um, in a record shop. Crabby Appleton. I had that. Did you? <laughs> I think I inherited it from, from someone who didn't know what they were doing. But, yes, awful. Awful album. <laughs> but, in, in fact, if you go to Wikipedia, if you go and look up Crappy Appleton, they do have a, an entry in Wikipedia and their album is on Apple Music. So you can – so if you are looking – if you are feeling, maybe, I don't know, feeling like listening to something bad, suggest you have a look for Crabby Appleton. Um, we might uh, – 
we'll build up a bit of a playlist out of this um, out of this podcast and put it onto uh, Spotify for you to uh, have a look at. We might find a crab apples a song just for your edification and enjoyment to pop onto that uh, onto that playlist if we're lucky. Yep. That's for with, with that suggested playlist, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff on there for people to play to their grandparents, mate. Yeah, if they're well, I don't know anybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, but I don't think we'll put any John English songs on there, I, despite the fact that you said there's a couple that are good. I think we might uh, move away from there. Um, and um, what about you? What what was uh, it was uh, really. Um, Bowie, that was on high rotation for you in your early seventies, wasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, and I and I really think that quite soon we should talk about uh, the, the impact of uh, the rise and fall of, of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars on music, English music, and us and me. All right, and thanks for that, Mick. And uh, I think we might call it a wrap for today. Um, just to remind you that we have got a Facebook page, which we'll uh, link in the show notes. You'll also uh, see the email address in there if you need to contact us and uh, whinge about um, uh, some of our facts or whatever. We'll also have, as we said before, some of that recommended listening uh, with or without John English. I'm not altogether sure. And we hope basically to uh, see you next time. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye now.